The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today my guest is Corey Robin. We'll be talking about the history of conservative thought, the significance of Donald Trump's presidency, and in the extended version of today's episode, we also chat about Ayn Rand's contribution to conservatism and the reasons for her immense popularity in the United States. You can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast and SoundCloud, and you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Other. And remember, if you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. And if you would like to, you can also support the show by donating via Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Corey Robin is a professor of political science at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Centre. He's the author of The Reactionary Mind, Conservatism from Edmund Burke to Donald Trump, which served as the focus of our discussion, and also of Fear, the History of a Political Idea. His essays and reviews have appeared in many outlets, including The New York Times, The New Yorker, Harper's The New Republic, and The London Review of Books. One of the things in, in the book that you're pains to point out is that there's this um, there's this notion which seems particularly common in the US that conservatism was once a sort of noble, measured political ideology that's now fallen into into disrepute. And you argue that this is really sort of contrary to the actual history of, of conservative political thought going all the way back to, to figures like Edmund Burke and his reaction to the French Revolution. And of course, there's also this very common notion, which I think is also very true in, in uh, you see a lot of it in Britain as well, that Donald Trump represents something completely novel in American uh, history. And uh, as I'm sure you've seen, he's sort of unfavorably compared to figures like George W. Bush, whose uh, public image has undergone a pretty uh, remarkable transformation. Um, mm. In what ways do you think that, that Donald Trump is in fact absolutely a part of that conservative tradition? And where, if anywhere, do you think that his his actual novelty does lie? Well, to answer that question, we have to really first ask, what is conservatism? And as I understand it, um, and I'll try to be quick about this because it can get a little bit long and ponderous. <laughs> um, but as I understand conservatism, going back to the beginning, um, it has always been a project of reaction against emancipatory movements of the lower orders and the, of the lower classes. Now, those movements change over time. Of course, Burke is responding to the French Revolution. In the 19th century, we begin to see in the United States movements for the emancipation of black slaves, um, workers in the 20th century, uh, women. So the movements change over time, but the, um, the act of reaction against those movements uh, is consistent. 
But but one of the things that's really fascinating about reaction, and this is really important because you say something that is reactionary or it's a pro- politics of reaction, I think people have a, immediately an idea in their head of what that means, namely a kind of reflexive, unthinking defense of established hierarchies. Hmm. And nothing could be and nothing really could be further from the truth. Um, because one of the things that I argue in the book and that I noticed in in, in reading and and teaching these texts, um is are are two things in fact one is despite the fact that reactionaries are defending a, an old regime they have an extraordinary amount of contempt for that old regime um they believe that the established elites the established rulers the traditional rulers have gotten us into this mess through being uh weak and uh flabby and lacking the kind of the muscle and the intelligence and the antenna uh, to really rule, that what they really lack is a will to power, according to the reactionaries. Hmm. And so what you need to do is to kind of cashier that old those old elites and create a new set of elites, a kind, what I call a new old regime, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, in the process of doing all of this, um, reactionaries oftentimes find themselves borrowing from the very revolution or ins- leftist insurgency that they are opposing. Uh, and there's all different sorts of ways in which this happens. But I think one of the key elements that what the reaction learns from the revolution is the power of the mass, um, that no politics in the modern era, which has become increasingly democratic, no politics will have any purchase on the polity uh, if it doesn't engage in a politics, engage in mass politics. So what reaction really is, I call it, is a kind of mass politics of privilege. Um, it's a restoration of a kind of reimagined old regime with a new set of elites who have this kind of antenna uh, for the people and for governing through the mass. Once we get clear upon that, I think Donald Trump begins to really come into view as a very legible figure on the right in many ways. Um, So for instance, all the things that um, commentators were appalled and repelled by and thought distinguished him from his predecessors, Uh, his contempt for the rule of law, his contempt for established institutions, his contempt for established elites um, on the one side. And then on the other hand, his kind of populism, both his racial populism and sometimes his economic populism, all of these elements um, have strong antecedents on the right. Now, again, they get expressed in different sorts of ways. Uh, But Burke, for instance, you know, really railed at the established elites in Britain, who he thought, you know, remember initially many of them were somewhat sympathetic to the French Revolution, mm-hmm. um, and he thought they had really lost their way. He, you know, in in his letters on a regicide peace, he just heaps contempt on the British Constitution. He says it's, you know, it's just weakness and smut and dust. Um, and so, you know, all of these things go back to the beginning, and I think you can see in Trump. Um, what's new about Trump? Um, and, and, and this kind of launches us into a whole um, different area. One of the things that I think that is, is kind of interesting and new is that there's always been a tension on the right in terms of its valorization of, of aristocratic politics, whether or not um, you would find the kind of modern great man on the battlefield, so the ethos of the warrior, or in the marketplace, the ethos of the businessman. And I think what's interesting about Trump is his reconceptualization of uh, the businessman as a warrior um, or a warrior as a businessman. I mean, it kind of goes back and forth. And this is, 
you know, uh, something that was kind of held in greater tension, I think, during the Cold War and the immediate aftermath of the Cold War. But what struck me in reading uh, Trump, reading Trump, it sounds idiotic to say that, but that's what I did, um, was how he uh, merged these two figures um, and and really conceives of the businessman as this kind of, you know, medieval warrior on the one hand and the ways in which he really thinks of the warrior as a businessman. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that goes on in there, but I'll, I'll stop right there. Is that, I mean, is, is there also a sense in which um, Trump conceives of, of America itself as a business? Uh, and that might have something to do with the way he's sort of reluctant to pick up the traditional role of sort of superintending the international system. It's almost as if he sees America as one capital amongst many. Absolutely. I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And I would add to it, it's not just that he thinks of it as a business. He thinks of it, he, Trump represents a specific kind of capitalism, um, what you might call family capitalism or dynastic capitalism. Mm. Um, you know, the, 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 the business that he ran, such as it was, you know, was it was really about Trump and his family. And I think he likewise thinks of the United States in a in a similar way. Um, and, you know, it, it gets into some, you know, kind of pretty crude uh, consumption of what public life is about. But what's interesting to me about it, um, and, and I said this from the beginning, once he became president, and it's it's in the book itself, that his entire conception of political power is drawn from his imagination of what is the life of the firm is like. And so, it, you know, if you read his campaign literature, what was almost funny, to be honest with you, um, he would talk this really tough talk about China, about Iraq. And then when you'd follow through, you know, to the next sentence, the next paragraph about what he was actually proposing to do, it was always to, to, to file a lawsuit against mm. them. And, you know, this is a man who had, before he became president, something on the order of, was involved in something on the order of 4,000 lawsuits. Um, the lawsuit is, is kind of the alpha and omega of his conception of power. Uh, and it, it really reflects somebody who was a real estate mogul uh, in New York um, who is always suing and going to court. And it's a it's it's not exactly the kind of fascistic, militaristic um, idea that I think people oftentimes have of him. And I, I think that wasn't just his rhetoric. You could see this in the reality of how he's governed. You know, he's he's always, um, you know, he's, his whole life is governed by lawyers, um, as opposed to the kind of power politics um, that someone like, let's say, George W. Bush, I think, uh, thought about, or Dick Cheney. Yeah, I mean, I did read some of was a, a collection was put together. I forget the name of it of, of some of Trump's speeches and interviews during the 1980s. And it was one of the very striking things was when he's talking about America's rivals. One of the one of the very striking things I, I I felt about it was that when he talks about Japan in the 1980s, when obviously there's this kind of fear of Japanese uh, industries sort or of swamping America with its products and all this sort of stuff. That he talks about Japan, it's always in terms of Japan is is ripping us off, that it's um, benefiting from America's military umbrella and 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 so. On. On, but that he doesn't really actually think about America's strategic rivals, particularly. Like it's very striking that he doesn't talk about the Soviet Union in much of their stuff. It's always about America's economic rivals. It's Japan. It's Germany. Yeah, I mean, and interestingly, you know, of course, China became a, a big theme, um, and you know, in a weird way, um, he, he may prove to be a little bit more prophetic. I think because um, you know, back in the 1990s. China was beginning to loom fairly large amongst um, particularly conservative strategic thinkers. 
a lot of that got sidelined because of 9-11 and the war on terror. You know, suddenly their attentions mm. were turned to Iraq and Iran and the Middle East. Uh, but now, as some of that stuff is being uh, is winding down a little bit, we're seeing the return of China amongst the sort of the strategic international relations class. And um, it'll be interesting um, to see how they deal with Trump on this question, because, of course, this, you know, he's been sounding this alarm for quite some time. And they may find in him somebody, you know, more of a, a, a compatriot, really, than a, an antagonist. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes me think of that. Um, I mean, as you say, China sort of looms large in the early days of the George W. Bush presidency, doesn't it? Where there's this sort of mini Cold War, which stops the minute 9-11 uh, happens. Um, just on the question of Trump's novelty, I suspect what some people might say is that, sure, in many respects, Trump fits into a into a, a lineage of, of conservative politicians and conservative thought. But that what we see with Trump that we don't see with somebody like George W. Bush, for instance, is this this kind of split within the Republican Party, which seems to provide evidence of Trump as as a, a sort of anti-systemic uh, politician. Um, would you would you go along with that? How much credence would you give to that sort of view? Well, you know, this is. Uh, a tr- I mean, uh, let me say a couple of things. I mean, just even though I I do believe he's quite continuous, it doesn't mean that there aren't differences. So mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think it's important. Um, to mention that, you know, the, the thing that I'm struck by, honestly, and and this was also pretty apparent early on, is not the ways in which Trump remade the Republican Party, but in ways in which the Republican Party remade Trump. Um, people forget this, but during his campaign, a big part of what he stood for was not just the kind of racial white nationalism, but the a kind of economic nationalism and economic populism. I mean, he promised he wouldn't touch um, entitlements. He talked about taxing the wealthy. He talked about actually expanding and enhancing the kind of health care one could get from the state. There were all he wouldn't touch Social Security. There were all these sorts of things. And of course, once he came into office, all that was junked. Uh, and it's, it's been forgotten and gone down the memory hole. Uh, and instead, the, the, the two things where I think he's been the most successful in, in the polity have been the tax cuts and the appointment of judges. Now, these are all, you know, incredibly standard Republican Party policy platforms. The areas where he has tried to transform the party, um, the party has kind of pushed back and has constrained him somewhat. So on international trade, for example, I mean, there's some stuff about the tariff and all the rest of it. uh, But it's nowhere near where, you know, where you talked about. Remember, he ran and and made all kinds of threats about pulling out of NATO. You know, he's nowhere Mm. got near that. On Russia, um, despite all the rhetoric of being Putin's puppet, um, you know, the the sanctions that have been applied to Russia and all the the actual policies that have been pursued are pretty standard Republican Party. So I'm really skeptical of these arguments that somehow or another he's changed the Republican Party. I, I think he's more adapted to the Republican Party. The fit more reflects the power of the party rather than his power. And so thinking about why he's not been completely embraced by the party would be that although he's not actually done these things that he campaigned on, nonetheless, he wanted to, and if he could, he would do. And so he's he remains undesirable from that sort of perspective. 
Yeah, I mean, and on the flip side, they actually sort of have embraced him as well. I mean, you know, in fact, the, the complaint that most people make in the states is that they haven't done enough to constrain him and they haven't done enough to put a distance between themselves and, and him. And and I, you know, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, they, they are pretty close. Um, but, you know, this sort of this anti-systems language um, that people talk about. And again, you know, you, you find this throughout. I mean, people forget that, you know, Conservatism historically was very much indebted to romanticism, um, and it was, you know, grounded, at least part of it was, in a critique of enlightenment rationality and in favor of a kind of more, uh, as I say, a, a more romantic conception of political life that was anti-institutional or extra-institutional. Extra um, so I think, you know, anti-systemic language has been part and parcel of the conservative tradition for a very long time, and it's only our what I think is our false sense that conservatism has been some kind of a sober philosophy of traditional prudential ruling classes embedded in the rule of law that prevents us from seeing, you know, how continuous he is in that regard. So in terms of some of the differences between the, the Trump era and the pre-Trump era, or we might say the, the pre and although obviously the dates don't align, but the, the, the pre-financial crisis era and the post-financial uh, crisis era, um, so one of the, the arguments that you make is that the way in which American conservative politicians pre-Trump had, had previously acquired support or, or acquiescence in their, in their project was by the provision of what's sometimes called the psychological wage, whereby certain segments of the population, whilst they might not be doing terribly well economically, at least they're afforded the benefits of feeling superior to some subaltern population, whether at home or abroad. Um, and, and one of the, you know, the very interesting examples that you point to in your book is the way that in pre-Civil War America in, in the South, efforts were made to democratize the possession of slaves in order to defend the institution of slavery more broadly. Um, why do you think that the conservative strategies that you know were relatively successful under politicians such as Reagan and, and the two Bush administrations, why have they ceased to cohere support around the conservative project? And, and what do you think the elevation of, of Trump points to in that sort of regard? Well, I think the biggest thing is that all of those democratizing projects, um, you know, a kind of slaveholding democracy, for instance, or other versions, white man's democracy, um, they were all forged in the teeth of a revolutionary challenge, of an insurgent challenge from below. Um, you know, white slaveholders didn't just come up with a theory of the white, you know, white man's democracy just for the sake of it. It was because they had to counter uh, uh, this sort of in, uh, abolitionist challenge. Um, and, you know, in the 1960s, uh, just to jump ahead a century, um, it was likewise to counter uh, the civil rights challenge. What has happened, I think, in the last 20 to 30 years is that the right overwhelmingly succeeded. You know, the, the civil rights movement really began to stall in 1970, 1971. And today, we live in the United States in a country that's more segregated by neighborhood and by schools than it was under Ronald Reagan. Um, that is a massive success for the right. Uh, and the civil rights movement really doesn't exist anymore. I mean, there's been some glimmerings, uh, new glimmerings of social movement and things like Black Lives Matter, but it has nowhere near you know, achieved the kind of traction uh, and salience that the black freedom struggle had in its heyday. Hmm. Um, so I think the peculiar thing about that is that having achieved their goals, the right, 
um, it becomes harder and harder um, to uh, invoke the kinds of arguments that they once would have made. So for instance, just to give you an easy example of this, um, just yesterday, Gallup poll showed that support for affirmative action among white people has really gone up in the last couple of years. You know, and on the one hand, that's a very welcome moral development, I think, in the United States. But on the other hand, I mean, the, the more sober, realistic side of me has to say that part of that kind of rise of a sort of moral sense of obligation uh, is premised on the fact that the black freedom struggle is, is so weak and that the, that the the kind of white supremacist backlash achieves so many of their goals. But, but, but to, you know, just to kind of answer it um, just, you know, more simply and directly, I think the reason why Trump and the Republican Party and the conservative movement is having such a tough time of it these days is because the right was so successful. They've really destroyed the left. Uh, and then, you know, suddenly um, the sorts of arguments that once really made sense and were salient, um, not just amongst a small group of cadres or a small minority of the population, but really, you know, had widespread majoritarian support. I mean, Richard Nixon was reelected with, you know, something like 63, 64 percent of the vote. Those sorts of, you know, that kind of racial backlash politics, which once could really appeal in a, in a, in a, in a kind of broad majoritarian sense, once the left is gone and defeated, they no longer have the same kind of appeal that they once had. Hmm. And is that also sort of buttressed by the relatively stagnant situation in, in the American economy in recent recent years? I mean, obviously, there's some significant growth at the moment. But, you know, compared to earlier periods, uh, we've not seen the same sort of growth as, as in the pre-financial crisis era. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, traditionally, the argument would be that, you know, when economic conditions are stagnating, you know, there's a kind of politics of um, uh, uh, a scapegoating, you know, and mm. so you turn to, uh, you know, white people blame it on black people or immigrants and so forth. And I think, you know, for a little period of time there, that was the kind of the argument among, you know, both people, um, liberals in the center and people on the left. Um, but, uh it doesn't. I don't really think it's. Um, I don't really think it explains Trump, to be honest with you. And uh, it, it certainly, you know. And as I said, you know, if anything, we've seen a weakening in the in the broad population, at least according to polling, of of certain kind of racial backlash politics. So yeah, I, I, I'm I'm not quite sure, but I, I don't think it reflects the kind of stagnation uh, so much. I suppose one thing someone might say in response to the thesis that um, the, the right is, in a, is a, in a moment of weakness and decline might simply be, if they're so weak, what are they doing in power? But uh, I, I suppose... It's a, fair, it's a fair question. Yeah. Um, um, but... Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a couple of things about this. First of all, I think you have to look at... Um, I mean, I'll answer how they got into power in a second and what it means. But I just think some things need to be put into perspective. Just first of all, the electoral returns. You know, we've had four, you know, pretty hard right Republican presidents in the last 50 years: Nixon, Reagan, Bush, Bush the younger, I should say, and now Trump. And what you see is over time 
um, they get increasingly elected with uh, less of the of the vote. And in fact, both Trump and Bush, astonishingly, were elected without winning the popular vote, but only the, the vote of the Electoral College. Now, this is something that has not happened in this country since the 19th century. Hmm. Um, so if you just look at the electoral returns, there's a steady decline, number one. If you look at some of the specific big ticket item votes, and one, you know, the obvious is tax cuts. Reagan had a major massive tax cut, as did George W. Bush, as did Trump. Um, what's astonishing about those tax cut votes is how over time, I mean, Reagan's vote passed over, well, I don't remember what the margins were, but it was in the upper, you know, in the Senate, it was something like 88 to 11. And in the House, it was 300 something to, you know, 100 something. Reagan got a tremendous, not only did he get un almost unanimous Republican support, he got a tremendous amount of Democratic support. Bush, it got narrowed, but nevertheless, he still got a substantive chunk of the Democratic Party vote on those tax cuts. Trump got no single, not a single Democratic vote for his mm. tax cuts. It was razor thin. And you could, you know, so so I think, you know, on, on, on big ticket items like that. And then if you actually look at what Trump has been able to achieve versus Bush versus Reagan, it's minuscule. I mean, it really is shocking uh, how little Trump has managed to achieve. So, I, you know, I, I think the um, when people say, but they're in power, you could say the same thing about Jimmy Carter and the Democratic Party. I mean, go back and look mm. what the, 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 you know, what in fact they had, the Democratic Party had far more votes in the Senate and the House of Representatives in 1978 than the Republican Party does in 2019. Um, so, you know, even, you know, despite that, we know history backwards that, you know, there was a showdown in 1980 and, and the entire New Deal order was, you know, smashed to smithereens. And that's, you know, where I think we are right now with the Republican Party. You know, I have no idea if this is going to happen in this coming election. A lot depends on the Democrats. Um, but it is a party that is in power in the same way that the Democratic Party was in power in the 1970s. And then the last thing I'll just say is that, you know, um, I was never surprised by the uh, triumph of Donald Trump in terms of winning the nomination of the Republican Party because I thought, well, this guy's you know fits perfectly with a lot of what I know about the Republican Party and the conservative mm -hmm. movement. Um, I was surprised by his victory in the election, and I think, and, and this goes to answer your question, um, what I really underestimated was also how weak the Democratic Party is, and uh, particularly the kind of Clinton win of the Democratic Party. Um, so you say, you know, how if they're so weak, how are they in power? Well, you can't fight something with nothing. You know, we live in a two-party system in this country. The fact of the matter is that this was a party that was ripe for the beating. But it, as it turns out, the party that was supposed to do that was even riper for the beating. Uh, and so that's where we are now. On, on the Democrats and, and particularly the, the, the Clintonite third way Democrats. So in your book, you, you argue that the real sort of driving force of conservatism is is opposition to the self-organization of, of, of ordinary people. But in the in the current moment, in both the Democratic Party and, and, and certainly very much within the, the Labour Party in Britain, there's tremendous opposition to to the emerging new left. And a lot of that seems to be motivated precisely by this fear of people organizing in a, in a self-directed way. Um, one way to interpret that is just to say, well, these people are actually conservatives. They're just sort of pretending to be on the left. But then that raises the question of, you know, why are you in this party at all if if uh, if you're just a, a conservative? Um, would you want to to com conflate those people with uh, actual card carrying conservatives? And, and if not, how would you interpret their hostility to to the movements around people like Bernie Sanders and, and Jeremy Corbyn? 
So, you know, there's one sentence in my entire book that deals with this question. And um, for obvious reasons, it never gets noticed or remarked upon because one sentence out of, you know, however many thousands isn't going to ever get any notice. But what I say in the introduction or in that chapter one of the book is um, not all counter-revolutions are conservative, but all conservatives are counter-revolutionary. And what I'm getting at there is that there is a long history in modern politics and modern political thought of counter-revolutionary movements or reactionary movements, if you want to call them that. Um, I I don't think they quite fit the mold uh, in in the specific sense, um, that are not conservative at all, but that are liberal. Um, Liberalism, of course, in France emerges in the early 19th century as in part an anti-Jacobin philosophy, Mm. an anti, you know, a a philosophy that really wants to contain the French Revolution. Uh, In the 20th century, uh, you know, we had uh, people like Walt Rostow, Cold War, liberal cold warriors and counterinsurgency theorists who were liberals. I mean, the C- people forget this, but the CIA was populated with liberals um, dedicated to stopping the advancing tide of socialism and communism throughout the decolonizing world. How they are different, um, I, you know, and this can get a little bit wonky. Um, I, you know, historically, um, liberalism, I think, has had a kind of Janus face uh, towards the question of social hierarchy and equality. Um, And at times, liberalism, at least in the United States, and even in Britain in the late 19th century, you had something called the new liberalism, um, really Mm -hmm. started trying to imagine new ways of reconceiving economic freedom and economic equality. Um, So I think liberalism sometimes can take that kind of of attack as it did in the 1930s in the United States. Uh, And then sometimes it can take a much more constrictive turn. And I just think it tends to be much more contingent. The way I read things is that um, and I'm, you know, I'm really simplifying a lot of political and intellectual history. Um, there was, you know, in the 1960s and the 1970s, there were a group of liberals who became concerned about the New Deal and, and became interested in things like deregulation. Um, Teddy Kennedy was one of them. Uh, Ralph Nader, uh, you know, and Stephen Breyer, who is the um, Supreme Court justice, were, you know, allied with Kennedy. These were all people who were worried about the kind of New Deal regulatory state. And and then you see them in uh, kind of neoliberal, you know, self, self-proclaimed neoliberals in the Democratic Party in the late 1970s and 1980s, arguing for the importance of markets, uh, for the nimbleness of markets, for the need to take on labor unions, you know, kind of like what you got somewhat, I think, with Tony Blair in Britain. Hmm. Um, the, the tricky thing, and, and then, you know, you have that on the one hand, then you have the fact that liberals traditional New Deal liberals in in the States and, you know, kind of traditional socialists, I guess you'd call them in Britain, losing elections. Uh, And so the confluence of these two factors, I think, created a kind of neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party and of the Labour Party. And this is a wing that, you know, um, fought very hard to wrest control from the Democratic Party, from the labor unions, from the left. Uh, And they have come of age um, with that. And, you know, they're not going to give it up that easily. I don't think they have the kind of full on ideological sorts of arguments of hierarchy and domination that you see on the right. Hmm. Uh, I think theirs are kind of a more contingent set of political circumstances. And, you know, we're seeing, um, you know, we're seeing what's happening with that battle today. I think it would be a mistake. I, I mean, while duly acknowledging that liberals 
uh, or centrists who are not conservative can nevertheless be kind of counter-revolutionary or reactionary. Well, you know, I think that's an important part of the story. I think it would be a mistake to just simply conflate them with the right. You know, there's not the same mass politics of privilege that you see on the right. Um, and, 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 you know, there's not the same contempt for the rule of law that you see on the right and, and a whole bunch of other and do you think it's, it's both a, a sort of analytic uh, mistake, but also uh, a tactical mistake, because potentially you can actually win these people over to your cause? Well, you know, I, I think it's... I'm, I'm not feeling particularly optimistic about that in, in the British context yeah. at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, and I'm not feeling that optimistic about that in the American context, but I also think, you know, the analytical question has to come first, the tactical one, you know. I'm allied with the kind of Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. I'm not an activist who's out there every day. Um, I, I would leave it to those folks to really make that kind of a call. I, I do think amongst kind of just rank and file voters who would call themselves liberal and may have supported Barack Obama and may have supported Hillary Clinton, I think there's a lot more wiggle room with those folks. Um, you know, uh, I've seen it. I know a lot of these people. Mm. Uh, I've seen how they've moved to the left in the last couple of years. So I guess to that extent, I think there's a possibility of winning over hearts and minds, you know, in the voter amongst the voters. And I think, you know, people on the left should be a little bit careful when you're talking to ordinary voters, uh, whether or not you can kind of wrest power from elites who have, you know, like I said, like really come of age and styled themselves in opposition to the kind of New Deal left or the, you know, I don't know, Tony Benn left or, or whatever the equivalent would be. Uh, in in Britain, I think that's a different question. Mm. I mean, in terms of those people, I, I th- one of the things I found interesting in your book was you talk about the uh, the, the sort of strategic virtuosity and, and nimbleness of, of conservatives that because they always have this sense that history is against them, that they're always on the defensive. It sort of allows them to to sometimes think more seriously about the sort of strategic situation than than people on the left, and it, it, it seems to be very much that way. With the with the you know the sort of the Blairites or the third way uh, Clintonites, um, that they simply believe that history is on their side, and you know we're in this sort of weird uh, in, interregnum that can't possibly last, and, and, and things will, will go back to normal. I mean, I think that's true. Um, what I would say also, though, is that it's not necessarily so inherent to conservatism that they have that nimbleness. I think it's situational nimbleness, mm. as it were. Um, you know. Conservatism emerges in the crucible of of the French Revolution, and uh, it's that experience of dispossession and loss that really forces conservatives to go back to the drawing board and rethink a lot of the fundamentals. And, you know, uh, uh, you see this in a figure like Burke. You see this in a figure like Joseph de Mast in France, um, really going back and, you know, kind of asking the question, where did we go wrong? Um, but then something peculiar happens, and you see this over and over again, and we're in this kind of moment today, I think, on the, with the right. Namely, once they are able to, if they are able to, win back power, beat back the left, re-ensconce themselves in power, um, you see the accumulation of the same kind of rot and corruption that was witnessed under the old regime. And suddenly, all that kind of um, nimbleness and the sort of political and moral and social antenna that is so highly attuned to what's going on around them, it starts kind of falling apart. 
And I think that explains something about the, the political and intellectual class on the right today. I mean, it, it's nowhere near the, the quality of intellectual and political leadership you saw between, say, the 1940s and the 1970s, both in the United States and in Europe mm. on the right. And it's not because people on the right are stupid today. It's not because they don't have, um, you know, as good as an education or, or because of Fox News and all these other things that people say. I think it's because the, you know, they accomplished their task. And if the task and your political, if your instruments are formed in the crucible of battle, and then the and then the war is won, well, you you stop being so good at war anymore. Um, and that's why I mean it's fascinating to watch this on social media right now with Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who's the representative from the Bronx and the Queens. I don't know if she's gotten a, a lot of coverage over in Britain. Oh, huge um, coverage, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you watch her on social media take on these conservatives and they are hamstrung. Like they have no idea what they're dealing with. And again, it's not because they're stupid. <clears throat> and it's and it, and and although AOC is fantastic, it's not just because she's fantastic. They're just so out of practice at dealing with the kind of rough and tumble of parliamentary debate, the kind of thing you used to see Thatcher, you know, excel at. Uh, they just they don't know how to do it anymore because they because they've been so victorious over the years. When you say that this can be explained in terms of them sort of achieving all their objectives, I, I suppose one thing I sort of wonder about that is that the situation is is not quite the same as as war, where there's sort of there's total mm -hmm. victory or there's total defeat. And you know, I, I, thinking about the situation in Britain, for example, um, you know, we've been through a long period of austerity. Uh, you know, poverty has increased dramatically. There's more homeless people, but you know, it, it's not quite. You know, we don't have favelas. You know, it's it's yeah, not it's not right. that level of, of of social disintegration. And uh, and I wonder why doesn't the desire to to you know really hammer home their victories and 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 really you know crush the remainder of the left and to, you know, just entirely transform society towards their ends. Right. Why is that not sufficient motivation for them to remain on their game, so to speak? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think it actually goes back to where we began this discussion. Um, you know, remember what I said, that conservatism is a movement in opposition to another movement that is seeking the emancipation of the lower orders. Mm. What conservatives really are animated and horrified and 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 you know and are genuinely horrified by is less you know something like a welfare state or a civil rights act and so forth you know a set of policies that would give resources to the working classes or african americans and so forth less horrified by that than they are by the actual agency of these lower orders, the actual ability of people to act on their own behalf. Um, there's a, I can't remember the quote, but there's a, there's a great quote. Um, this actually is not from the United States or from Europe. It's from Guatemala, um, where there was a, a real sort of social revolution and the archbishop of Guatemala city or something like mm. that, you know, the thing he was so horrified by, and I can't remember, I'm sorry, the exact quote, but I think it's I, I know the, the one book. you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was, the fact that peasants were now coming to the capital and speaking for themselves. And you see this over and over and over again. You know, John C. Calhoun, who was the kind of real great architect in, in, in a way of the Southern position on slavery in the 19th century, 
you know, he's dying in the Senate in the early 1850s. It's his sort of last gasp, and he's reviewing his career. And he and he says, you know, where did the where and and he 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 senses the writing on the wall because the abolitionists have really gotten powerful. The Republican Party is about to be born as an abolitionist party, and he kind of is wondering where did all this begin. And he and he and he goes back to this moment when um, abolitionists began to make the effort to present petitions to the Senate. And it's a very peculiar choice that he makes because there were so many other things he could have talked about, other defeats for the Southern position. But he fixates on that. And I think this goes to the heart of it. It was the actual agency, Hmm. the act of emancipation, the ability to speak on your own behalf of subaltern classes, um, whether it's in the 19th century or in the 20th century, that really horrifies and galvanizes the right in an almost theological sense. Uh, in a very profound sense. And I think, uh, you know, for the right in the 20th century, at least in the United States, you know, the two great movements, the two great movements that they wanted to stop were the labor movement and the African-American freedom struggle. And they did. Now, no counter-revolution, I mean, even the French counter-revolution was never successful in completely undoing the revolution. Hmm. Um, and Burke, in fact, so, you know, Burke says this in a letter to an emigre who, you know, is envisioning the happy day when the, the French monarchy will be restored. And Burke sort of chides him and say, you know, you know, make no mistake. This is it's not going to be what it was before. It's going to be something new. Um, so no counter revolution, no reaction is ever able to completely undo the revolutionary or radical or reformist uh, settlement. Um, But what they really want to do first and foremost is to crush the actual ability of common people, uh, ordinary people, the lower orders, the subaltern classes to act on their own behalf. And I think there you have to say uh, that they have been successful. Um, And, uh, you know, we're beginning to see the beginnings, I hope, of a kind of left insurgency. Uh, But it's just, you know, the beginnings um, and you can see the Republicans, there they are trying to whip up their followers. They're talking about socialism, Bernie Sanders, and da da da. It just doesn't have the same purchase. Mm. Um, uh, because the memory of socialism is not so great. The memory of a time, frankly, of the welfare state. I mean, I, I get the theoretical and analytical point of your question, and I think it's a fair one, but I think Republicans and conservatives answer it for you uh, because they're just, they're not sufficiently scandalized by. Bernie Sanders, by AOC, hmm. by Black Lives Matter, to get their act together uh, and to discipline themselves into forging a new counter movement. And Trump is the expression of that, his slovenliness, uh, his absolute, he's a mess of a human being. <laughs> uh, I mean, he is. And they know it and they revel in it and they love it. And, you know, they would have never afforded that themselves the the luxury of that kind of irresponsibility uh, when there was something at stake between the 1930s and the 1970s. They they disciplined themselves into becoming soldiers, mm. uh, and that's how they beat back the left. Um, and so, yeah, sure, you know, uh, Social Security dismantle Social Security, dismantle Medicare. As it turns out, it just doesn't really kind of awaken the, uh, the the dream of eternity in the same way that crushing the labor movement and crushing the black freedom struggle did. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. 
If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.